If you would, open your Bibles to the Old Testament book of Joshua, the 14th chapter. While you're turning there, I need to be just completely transparent with you and let you know that when I started writing this message, I did so with the older folks in our congregation in mind. Now, this might be a little offensive to some of you, and I don't mean it that way, but when I say the older folks, I mean those that have traveled at least 60 years down the trail of life. That's who I was targeting with this message. And the further I got into it, the more I realized that it really had the ability to speak to people at every stage of life. So I hope you'll pay attention no matter where you are at on that trail. Pay attention to what God's Word has to teach. If you're over the age of 60 and in that particular season, listen really close. We are going to be looking at an often overlooked individual in the Bible that should not be. He has a lot to teach, a lot for us to learn just by studying his life, studying what Scripture says about him. So I hope you will listen closely this morning, not to me, but to God's Word. If you're in Joshua chapter 14, we're going to pick up in verse 6. Listen to this. Then the people of Judah came to Joshua at Gilgal, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, said to him, You know what the Lord said to Moses, the man of God, in Kadesh Barnea concerning you and me. I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land, and I brought him word again as it was in my heart. But my brothers who went up with me made the heart of the people melt, yet I wholly followed the Lord my God. And Moses swore on that day, saying, Surely the land on which your foot has trodden shall be an inheritance for you and your children forever, because you have wholly followed the Lord my God. And now, behold, the Lord has kept me alive, just as he said, these 45 years since the time that the Lord spoke this word to Moses, while Israel walked in the wilderness. And now, behold, I am this day 85 years old. I am still as strong today as I was in the day that Moses sent me. My strength now is as my strength was then, for war and for going and coming. So now give me this hill country of which the Lord spoke on that day. For you heard on that day how the Anakim were there with great fortified cities. It may be that the Lord will be with me and I shall drive them out, just as the Lord said. Then Joshua blessed him and gave Hebron to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, for an inheritance. Therefore, Hebron became the inheritance of Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, to this day, because he wholly followed the Lord, the God of Israel. Now the name of Hebron formerly was Kiriath Arba. Arba was the greatest man among the Anakim, and the land had rest from war. Caleb, what a man. What a, an inspiration to the hearts of those that are willing to study him and really find out the depth of this passage. And that's what we're going to do this morning. Now, in order to do that, we really have to figure out who Caleb is. He is, as I said, often overlooked, partly because he doesn't show up much in the Bible. He's kind of a behind-the-scenes individual, particularly in the telling of this Old Testament story as they move into the Promised Land. He is quite prominent, but he never lives in the spotlight. He was one of 12 men chosen by Moses to go into the promised land and spy it out. That's exactly what he was just teaching us. I want you to see where that happens in Scripture, because remember, I want the Bible to teach this morning. So let's go back to the book of Numbers. 
Numbers chapter 13, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel. From each tribe of their fathers, you shall send a man, every one a chief among them. So here's what Moses had to do. He had to find the chief men in their tribes and send them into the promised land to bring back a record of what was waiting for all of the Hebrew people. He wanted to know about the land. He wanted to know about the fruits of the land. He wanted to know about the enemies they would face. This was a wise military choice. He didn't just send one or two to do this reconnaissance. He wanted the voice of many. So 12 men were chosen, chief men, men that were warriors, men that had distinguished themselves among the tribes and among all of the Jews. Those 12 men were sent to look at the land. When they came back, 10 of them were as white as ghost and scared spitless. Two of them, two of them, Joshua and Caleb, were full of all kinds of vinegar. They were ready to get in there and go to war. They came back not discouraged, but rather encouraged, ready to face down the enemies, not only of the Hebrew people, but of God. Listen to how the Bible records their report. We're still in chapter 13. Let's go to verse 25. At the end of 40 days, they returned from spying out the land. And they came to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told him, we came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negev. The Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the hill country. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. But Caleb, here he is again, quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with him said, We're not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land. That they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people that we saw in it are of great height. Listen closely to verse 33. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim. And we seem to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seem to them. These ten men were saying, There is no way. There is no way that we can go into this land and take this place. The enemies that we will face are giants. I love his description of it. To them, we look like grasshoppers, and that's how we felt. We are tiny in their sight. The sons of Anak are there. The Anakim are huge. There is no way that we can do this. Yes, the land flows with milk and honey. Yes, the fruit is amazing, but we do not need any part of this. I want you to see what they would choose instead. Verse 14, or chapter 14. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, 
or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? Oh, my word. And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel. And Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, who were among them, who had spied out the land, tore their clothes and said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, The land which we pass through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land, for they are bred for us. Their protection is removed from them and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Then all the congregation said to stone them with stones. But the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. That is not a good moment in the life of the Hebrew people. They were listening to the voice of the ten. The two, the voices of faith, were being disregarded. They were listening to the cowards that said, even though we have experienced all of God's protection these years in the wilderness, and it was only a few by that point, but even though we have experienced God's protection and providence when he brought us out of slavery, that is not enough to take us into the promised land. It's not enough for God to carry us all the way in there. But Joshua and Caleb said, oh, yes, it is. Oh, yes, it is. But these people said, let's go back to Egypt. Let's go back to slavery. Let's go back and live under Pharaoh's rule. We cannot do this. The enemies are too big. They are too big. In that moment, something quite intriguing happened. I hope you heard it. The glory of the Lord descended upon the tent of meeting. The Shekinah glory of God came into the camp. God was not happy. In fact, God was quite upset. He wasn't upset with Joshua and Caleb. He was upset with the other ten spies, and he was upset with the people of Israel. God was not pleased. He was listening. God is always listening, and he was mad. I want you to listen to what happens. This is chapter 14, verse 24. But my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land into which he went, and his descendants shall possess it. Now, in order to put that in perspective, let's jump down to verse 30. Not one shall come into the land where I swore that I would make you dwell, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. When the glory of the Lord came into the tent of meeting, God brought with him two messages, one of judgment and one of promise. The message of judgment would fall on a couple million Israelite people, roughly at that time about a million, maybe a million and a quarter. All of those people would experience the judgment of God. Joshua and Caleb would be delivered from that. They would actually receive the promises of the Lord and they would move into this new land. But the rest of them, the rest of them would die. Every one of them. They would wander aimlessly for the better part of 40 years in the wilderness where their bodies would drop one after the other until every one of them was dead except for two. Now, do not lose sight of the fact that when God said that, he was actually making that declaration to Moses, who was the leader of the Israelites at this time. Did you catch it when he said, only these two will go into the promised land? 
Now, if Moses was anything like me, and I don't know that he was, but if he was anything like me and probably a little bit like you, he might have wanted to say to the Lord, you mean those two are going to go in with me? That's what you're really saying, God, right? I'm going to cross that line too. But in point of fact, Moses did not go into the promised land. He saw it, but he never set foot in it. He died within arm's reach. The Bible tells us why that is. That was a godly reason, and God honored him even within his death and funeral. But Moses didn't go into the promised land. Only two people did. Who were they? Joshua and Caleb. They're the only ones. The rest of them died. The rest of them lost their lives because they could not trust God, because they did not believe that God had the ability to deal with the giants, because they could not trust their history with Him, because they could not put their faith in Him. God said, you will not possess that land. And that's why the Hebrew people wandered for 40 years. That's why the Hebrew people stayed in the desert. That's why they never got to experience the promise because they couldn't trust. But that was not true for Joshua and Caleb, not at all. So in Joshua 14 that we read just a few minutes ago, we come across Caleb making quite a request of Joshua. Once they had entered the promised land and crossed the Jordan River, it was time to divide up the land. It was time to give everybody their inheritance. Caleb was the only one that was allowed to make a request of land. Everybody else received their land by the casting of lots, but Caleb was able to make a request, not only of Joshua, but of God. And what a request it was. Now, you heard it just a minute ago. Let's listen to what he was saying. Now, here's Phil's paraphrase of this so that you really understand him. Caleb was 85 years old. Now, follow this. He was 40 years old when he was sent in to spy out the land. The judgment of God came to rest on them. They wandered in the desert for 40 years. There was five years of intervening time, both on the front end and the back end of that wilderness wandering. So by this point, he was 85 years old. And this is what Caleb said to Joshua. I am as strong today at 85 as I was when I was 40. I am ready for war and I am ready for work and I am ready to kill some giants. So let me have them. That was his request. He said, give me the hill country. That's where the Anakim live. I want to go where the giants are. Now, in my own way of thinking, and this is just my speculation, so you hang with me through this. I think Caleb was saying to Joshua, since I saw them 45 years ago, I can't get the giants out of my mind. I've been planning a battle against them since the first time I saw them. And I have been expecting God to do something with them from the first time I laid eyes on them. So give me the hill country. I'll take that. And he might have even been saying something along these lines. I know the hearts of the rest of these people are terrified of them because they are so huge. You let me have them. I'll take them. I'm as strong today as I was when I was 40 years old and I am ready for them. I will take the giants. Isn't that cool? 85 years old. You give me the hill country. I'll take them. I love this guy. I love his heart. I love the way he is approaching life. 85 years old, I'm as strong as I was when I was 40. I'm ready for war and work, and I'll take the giants. That's good stuff. That's just good stuff. So Joshua gave him the hill country. Joshua said, you can have it. 
I'll grant your request. And I think Joshua patted him on the back and said, you go get him, brother. You go get him, and if you need me, I'll come too. Because you and I have seen them. We know what they look like. Well, really, when we start exploring this passage, we don't do it any justice unless we figure out who these giants were. The Bible calls them in Joshua chapter 14, the Anakim. Who are they? We heard a few minutes ago in the book of Numbers that they were the descendants of the Nephilim, which still leaves us wondering, who are they? Let's go to the book of Deuteronomy so you can actually figure this out. Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 1. If you're a note taker, this is really an interesting one to carve out in your Bible. Every once in a while, people get asked questions about who the Anakim are and who the Nephilim are, and Scripture is very plain about it. Verse 1, chapter 9. Hear, O Israel, you are to cross over the Jordan today to go in to dispossess nations greater and mightier than you, cities great and fortified up to heaven, a people great and tall, the sons of the Anakim, whom you know and of whom you have heard it said, who can stand before the sons of Anak? Know therefore today that he who goes over before you as a consuming fire is the Lord your God. He will destroy them and subdue them before you. So you shall drive them out and make them perish quickly as the Lord has promised you. Caleb knew that promise from God. He knew that everybody else was terrified of the sons of Anak. The Anakim were the people of legend. They were the ones that everybody stood in fear of. But God said, don't worry about it because I'm going to go ahead of you and I will take care of them so you don't have to worry about it. But still, even once we understand that they are giants, that these are big men, there's still a part of the puzzle that is missing to really get it all in mind. We've got to go back to the book of Genesis to see it. Let's do that. Genesis chapter 6. Here's where they came from. Verse 1. Now, you may find that in your Bible, the heading over this passage is the flood. This is the story of the flood. We're all very familiar with it. But oftentimes, these details are left out. Listen to this, verse 1. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. That's who the Anakim are. They were a direct descendant of the Nephilim. Now, of course, you might be wondering, who in the world are the Nephilim? This doesn't make sense. Well, Genesis chapter 6 tells us who they were. The sons of God is always a description, particularly in the Old Testament, of angels. In this particular case, it is a description of the fallen angels, those that were cast to the earth. They were having sexual relations with women, and they were producing offspring, the Nephilim. That's who they were. They were part angel, and they were part human. That's the reason God destroyed the world by flood. Something had happened that was, it was out of control. God destroyed the world by flood. He said, this isn't going to happen anymore. But did you catch that tiny little detail about the Nephilim? They were on the earth before the flood, and what's the Bible say? And after. 
When they remained on the earth, they remained in spirit form. The physical manifestation died in the flood, but they remained in spirit form. And they began to possess people. When they possessed people, the Anakim were born. The Anakim were the descendants of the Nephilim. They were huge. They were giants. They were the heroes of old, the men of renown. They were the stuff that legends are made of. And they should have been. They were superhuman. And now you have Caleb saying, I'll take them. I'll take them. Yep, I've got my family with me. Good. Good to go. Don't need anybody else. Give us some rocks. Give us some spears. Give us some shields. We got them. I understand that they have superhuman powers and strength, but we got them. And Caleb said, I'll take the hill country where they live. I want them. I want them. Because he knew the promise of God, that God would go like a consuming fire ahead of him, and God would take care of the Anakim. God would drive them out. And he did. He did. The Bible says that after Caleb possessed that land, they experienced a time of peace because the Anakim were gone. Those that did survive took up residence in Gaza and Gad and Ashdod, what we know today as the Gaza Strip. That's where they went to live. They went down to live, not in the hill country, but in the desolate places, the places where the Philistines came from. There's another well-known giant that came out of the Philistines, out of that same area, that would fight against the Israelites later on. His name, of course, was Goliath, son of Anak. That's why he was a giant. He was part of the Anakim. The Philistines were made up of the Anakim. God would deal with him as well. Caleb, though. Caleb said, let me have them. Now that's, that's pretty impressive. Here's the reason that we go through all of this, and here's the reason that I want you to see this. Culture and society today says that we all need to work a number of years on the face of this earth until we get to a certain age, and then we ought to retire. Sit down in the recliner, kick our feet up, and not worry about anything anymore. We have reached that goal line. We've crossed it. The Bible never, the Bible never instructs anyone to retire. Now, professionally, no problem with that. But retirement in the kingdom of God does not exist. The Bible says that you stay in it until you're done here. You stay in it until the Lord calls you home. There is no point for spiritual kingdom retirement. There is no teaching for it because there are some giants that have to be killed. There are some giants that need to be taken care of. Caleb was, let's just say it together, how old? He was 85 years old when he said, I'll take the giants. It has been my experience that some of the best giant killers are those that have gone down the trail quite a ways. They're the ones who have some years behind them because they have wisdom coupled with courage. They have experience that they bring to giant killing that we don't have until we have traveled a number of years, until we have put some time behind us. Now, not all giant killers are advanced in years. There are some very young giant killers, and the kingdom of God is made up of them, and I am thrilled about that. They are forcefully advancing the kingdom of God, but oftentimes they're doing that in the wake of those that have gone before, those that have some experience in killing giants. I was 30 years old when I faced the second giant of my ministry career. 
and I could not have handled it on my own. I had a lawsuit filed against me from a counseling situation that I had been involved in in Colorado. It was a very heady issue. It was nothing easy at all. When the people sat with me and told me what had happened, I sought the counsel of some older men in the faith, and I said, I don't know what to do with this. You've got to help me. And we put together a plan that we carried out. It was a God-given plan as we had prayed about it, and to this day, having reflected on it for a number of years, I'd do it all over again. But in the intervening time, we had left Colorado and moved to Missouri. I was working on staff with a very seasoned, wonderful, godly man who was 72 years old at the time. I got a call from an attorney in Colorado who told me that suit had been filed against me and I would be receiving the papers, myself and several other people. I got the papers, I looked at them, and I thought, are you kidding me? This is, this is, this is unbelievable. I was scared. I was terrified. I had never faced a giant like this before. And I didn't know what the outcome was going to look like. And I was struggling even to trust God. So I took the paperwork and went to my boss's office where I sat down and told him the entire story. I laid it out for him from beginning to end. And I let him read through the papers that I had received from the attorney. And this is what he said to me. I'll never forget this. I never have. He said, Phil, don't you worry about this. I am old enough and tired enough of this foolishness that they'll deal with me, not with you. I'll take care of it. Sweet. And he wasn't even a part of that church. So he took the paperwork from me, and I do not know who he called or how he made this thing go away, but I know that it went away, and he killed the giants. And peace came back into my life because I went to a man at 72 years old and said, I am clueless as to what to do about this, and I don't know what the outcome's going to be, and I need help. And he said, I got it. Give me the hill country. You see, people that have that type of experience are ready for the hill country. They're ready for the giants. That's what Caleb was doing. Folks, if you have found yourself advancing in years and you don't know what your purpose is, I want to offer to you that there are some giants that need to be killed. Get after it. There are some giants that need to be taken care of and the kingdom of God needs you. I know that our church is made up of giant killers and a lot of them are advanced in years And I'm thrilled that they are a part of what happens at Libby Christian Church. I sat at my computer this last week, and I was just making a list of names and ministries that have people that are over the age of 60 serving within them, and some that are over the age of 80 that are serving within them. And in every situation, I found giant killers. Men and women that weren't afraid of the hill country because they're passionate for the kingdom of God. And when they have reached this new season in life where their time constraints and financial constraints have changed, their stress constraints have changed, they've said, let me have the giants. I'll take them. And they're laying them down. They're just laying them down and driving them out of the land. And Libby Christian Church gets the privilege of living under the blessing of these giant killers. Not all of them are 60 and older. There's a number that are younger and they are going to become forceful people to deal with in the kingdom of God and they are becoming that. But they get the privilege of following these folks down the trail. Isn't that cool? Caleb's. You know what? There's some giants out there. I got them. I got them. Don't worry about it. I got it. What a great thing. Still, there's people that would say, I want to be that person and I don't know how to do it. I don't know how to find a place in the kingdom, be it young or old. I don't know how to do it. Well, I spent some time this past week with a fellow named Richard Stearns. 
who is a giant killer. He is the president of a mission organization that we know as World Vision. He sends missionaries all over the world. He has not always served in ministries. He started his career out working for the Parker Brothers organization, became the CEO there, and then he moved on to the Lennox Corporation where he became the CEO. And then he decided, I've done enough of that. I want my life to matter for the kingdom. So he switched over to World Vision when they offered him the opportunity to be president. He wrote a wonderful book about what it means to find a purpose and a place in the kingdom of God. And I want to give the next couple of minutes over to Mr. Stearns. There are six things that I want you to hear from him. If you have a worship folder with you this morning, pull that out. There's a thing in there, a little insert, that says sermon notes on one side. It's blank. On the other side, there are six blanks with quotes after them. Those quotes come out of Stearns' book. I want to help you fill in those blanks so that you have a tool that you can stick in your Bible from now on when you are struggling to find purpose and place and meaning in the kingdom. These six things can help. Let's start with number one. Here we go. You need to commit. The word commit fills in that first blank. Before we begin the journey we must first commit to the destination. That is good medicine. If you want to be a giant killer in the kingdom of God, you are going to have to go all in for the kingdom of God. Nothing standing between you and the purposes that God has for you. You go all in. And you say, Lord, you use me. I am wholly committed to you. When that happens, number two becomes fairly easy. You need to pray. Prayer is the method and the Holy Spirit is the mechanism whereby God has given us the ability to discern His direction in our lives. So start praying and don't stop. But let me remind you of this. A good portion of prayer comes in silence. Get quiet and listen to God. You pay attention to where He is leading you, particularly if you are looking for purpose. If you're looking for a place in the kingdom, you get quiet And listen to the Lord and the Holy Spirit will guide and direct. Number three, prepare. Just as it is a mistake not to prepare ourselves by studying God's word, it is also a mistake to try and go it alone. God brought us together in community to strengthen and encourage one another. Wise disciples who have traveled the same road before you can offer crucial advice for the journey. Fellow Christians can offer guidance, insight, correction, practical tools, and great encouragement to us as we seek to discern God's will for our lives. There's an African proverb that goes like this, if you want to run fast, run alone. If you want to run far, run together. Giant killers are full of wisdom to know that they need to surround themselves with people that have gone before them. They need to learn not only the victories, but learn from the mistakes that those people have made. You prepare yourself by surrounding yourself with people that know where you're headed. They've already been there. So prepare yourself by sitting with them and learning from them. Number four, obey. Our lives are comprised of thousands of small daily decisions and actions. How we treat others, how we use our money, what we do with our abilities, where we invest our time, and what example we set for others to see. Before God will call you to something greater, He first wants to see what you have done in the small things. 
Only if we seek to live our lives as his disciples, seeking his kingdom in every sphere, work, family, money, relationships, community, and church, will we fully discover that unique thing God has called us to do and become the people that he created us to be. That's good medicine. It really is. So you have to, you have to apply these things in your life. And here's the way to do this. You choose relationship with God over religion. Religion has never saved anybody. Religion has never given anybody a purpose. Religion has never made anybody an impactful human being. But relationship with God has. You choose that relationship and the Lord will take you to amazing places. Number five, act. This comes from Oz Guinness. Richard quotes him in his book. The truth is not that God is finding us a place for our gifts, but that God has created us and our gifts for a place of his choosing. And we will only be ourselves when we are finally there. God has placed within you a purpose. That's true of every individual, every individual. I don't care who you are. God has placed within you a purpose. Bring it out. Start serving in that capacity. Let God use you so that you can make a difference for all eternity. You let God use you in the kingdom so that you can do something significant. Number six, trust. We are to live with this question on our lips at all times. How can I serve the Lord today here in this place? And we are to trust that only God knows the full significance of the role he has called us to play in his greater mission. You trust God. Caleb did. When he had to face some giants, he trusted God. He knew what God had said, and he took God at his word. You trust God. The Lord will put some giants in front of you, and he'll help you lay them down. That's how you do it. It's pretty simple when you see it in those six steps. Just apply them. Study them. Fill in the blanks from your own life within those six steps and see where the Lord takes you. And maybe, just maybe, you need to have a little motivation behind that. I would encourage you to turn with me to Joshua chapter 1, verse 1. And here you'll find it. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, who, by the way, was roughly the same age as Caleb, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise. Go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving them to the people of Israel. What a simple teaching from the Lord. Moses is dead. The season of protection that you have lived under is behind you. The person that you have been able to follow, gone. This is your time. That's what he was saying to Joshua. This is your time. Now arise. He didn't mean get off your face. He meant arise. Rise to the situation. You have a new group of people that are going to trust you. You arise and you lead them. We can apply that in every season of our lives. Follow me through this. If you have just finished sixth grade and you're headed into middle school, you're facing a brand new season of your life, young people. Arise. Arise. If you were raised in the things of God and now you're going into this new season, you arise. It's going to be a challenge like you've never faced and there are giants there, so you arise. If you have just finished middle school and you're moving into high school, new season of your life, new giants, arise. 
This is your time. You trust God and kill some giants, but first arise to the occasion. If you finished high school and you have moved off into the world or you're getting ready to, whether that is the workforce or into higher education, God would say to Joshua, arise in that situation because there are giants in front of you. Arise if you want to move into the promises of God. Arise. If you're leaving the independence of the single life into marriage, there's some giants in front of you. Arise. As a married couple, if you're about to welcome the birth of your first child, there are some new giants in front of you. Arise. There's some new land there. Arise. As your children are leaving home and you're facing an empty nest, arise. It's a new season. Arise. If you are leaving a career behind you, arise. You have an opportunity to do something for the kingdom of God. Arise. And go forward and let God take it. And until he calls you home, you stay at it. You just stay at it. God will tell you when you're done. Until then, lay down some giants. Why don't you stand and pray with me? Father, it's true that there are giants in our world, no question about it. It's true that we need your help to defeat them. But you've promised us you will. So Lord, make us bold. Make us bold to go after them like Caleb was. Set our sights on them so that we don't run in fear like the others did. And show us, Lord, show us what you can do. Show us what we can do with you. Lord, stir our hearts to rise up when we need to and kill some giants. I pray you'll help us do that. I know there are some that have some spiritual giants in front of them that they need to take care of. Would you let this be the day that that happens? In Jesus' name, amen.